Welcome to a Longer Table podcast, a space for real and sometimes hard conversations that will often challenge your perspective and always empower you to pull up more seats around your own table. I'm your host, Amanda Carpenter. Let's dive in. I am really excited for y'all to hear this conversation today with my friends Corey and Allie. They went to Bethel University just like I did. We were just a few years apart at the same college, and I have just watched y'all live your life to, you know, kind of graduate and go on. And I don't even know exactly how we've stayed connected, social media, mutual friends, but I have loved watching the life that you're living, which we're going to talk about. Um, But it's because you embody, I, I truly feel like, as a, as a couple in the family that you have in the community that I see, you embody what I envision longer table living to be. Like if I am to look up what longer table living means in the dictionary, I see a picture of your life. And I, I genuinely mean that. I'm not trying to put you on a pedestal, but I'm just so excited to talk about how you got to the place that you're in today. And ultimately, like, ask you some specific questions so that we can all, all of us who aspire to follow Jesus, to live out our faith, um, to, to do good and not cause more harm with people that we're trying to help. Um, I want to get into all that. So thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. We're super excited. Super honored that you asked us. We're, We're excited about this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I remember correctly, one or both of you during your time at Bethel was involved with um, Keller Park, which was affiliated with our university. And for people who aren't listening, basically there's a neighborhood near our college that people could live in and basically just, yeah, live and be amongst the people and do life with them. And it was sort of its own ministry. That's a really condensed version. Tell me like, if, if from what I'm remembering, if that's true, if that's kind of where things start, I want to know basically your story. Tell me your story of how y'all ended up married and then let's kind of go from there. Yeah. Yeah. So very good. So it's pretty close, but I'll correct some of the, some of the things. Um, we, in 2009, we graduated we got engaged in the, in the spring, like most Bethel people did. <laughs> and we then moved into Keller Park neighborhood on the Northwest side of South Bend, 20 minutes from Bethel, never had been there in our four years. Um, we had heard of a church called Keller Park Church doing some stuff. There's another nonprofit doing some cool things. So we actually started Transformation Ministries then by moving into that neighborhood. Okay. So was that, was Keller Park Ministry or like what I was thinking of, did that almost like not actually exist and you guys sort of created it? Yeah. So there was a group of students living like on the Southeast side of South Bend, kind of just had this heart to love the homeless people and invite people in and kind of have that longer table mindset. And the administration from Bethel said, Hey, there's some kind of radical students that are doing some cool things. We think they could use a little guidance and some, some leadership. And so we're actually going to, we'd love it if you, if they could move into your neighborhood with you guys as well. So actually Allie lived with the girls mm-hmm. for the first three months before we got married, but we started like the same exact time. So, mm-hmm. which was interesting, right? I mean, we were new at this too. They were a few years younger than us because they were undergrads. We had graduated but, but we were learning together what it was like to live in this community that was uh, predominantly African-American mm-hmm. and trying to figure out how to love our neighbors well. And so there was some, it was beautiful, but there were some rocky points of like, how do we all do this together? That program ended up going on for about 11 years mm-hmm. and we continued to grow it and expand it. We ended up having two houses in the neighborhood, a guy's and a girl's house. And, and those students would essentially do a semester abroad from Bethel but just 20 minutes away. Mm. And uh, they were involved as mentors and tutors and so many other things that we did with the students that we, we served. Yeah. Um, so that was a, a huge piece of it, but that we didn't know of that until we got there. It's called the urban ministry experience. Yeah. Is what we call it. I think when we first graduated, we were those typical college students that we knew we were getting married, but we were like, okay, what do we do with our lives? We have our degrees, but what? Um, and we, we talked and we narrowed it down to like three values that we had. We were like, okay, we know that we love youth, like mm-hmm. middle school, high school, any, like we just love them dearly mm-hmm. and they have to be in our lives. And then we knew we love different cultures that was, we had traveled overseas and done some mission trips stuff. And then we knew we loved hospitality and we were just like, we want to open our home wherever we are. So those three values really grounded us. We didn't really care where we landed. We just knew those three had to take place. And so when God opened the doors for us to move to Keller Park neighborhood and kind of run this 
college thing. And it was at first we were a little disappointed. We thought we would do like the big thing and go overseas. And, you know, that would be like doing something Mm -hmm. big for God. Mm -hmm. And so we were like, man, we're only 10 minutes away from our college. And it was crazy because when we got there 10 minutes away, which we had never been there before, you felt like you were in a different country. It was crazy. And it was awesome. And we loved it. Mm -hmm. I mean, people were out on their front porches. Um, We would go for walks. There were just, I had never experienced that. I had grown up in the suburbs where you didn't really talk to your neighbor. (laughs) You didn't Mm -hmm. barely see your neighbor because you drive into your garage and the garage door shuts and you walk in your house. You can go days and weeks without talking to your neighbors. And this living in this neighborhood, right in the heart of the city, Um, it was like magical. I mean, people were interacting and it was great. So we dove in right away and we fell in love with it. And we had a bumpy road of figuring out, we tried to kind of start like a youth group. And there was, we learned quickly that when kids came and there was just like free food, it was kind of a free for all and lots of stuff would happen and go down. And all of a sudden, you know, craziness is, happening so we we learned to put structure around some of the things that were happening and we and we were you know we were so blessed because we didn't come in honestly with an agenda or like these large programs like we simply came in with those kind of those values we talked about one of those being hospitality of our opening up our home obviously but also our hearts and we really really I remember at the age of 22 we were like we really want to open up our hearts in a hospitable way where we get involved in the messiness of people's lives we, that was a huge thing for us and so that was our kind of our driving force as we, as we did this. So we didn't start the first year. We didn't start anything. No, we, we got just, up every morning. We read our Bible on the front porch, talked to everyone who walked by. Yeah. Then we'd do like an hour walk around the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I coached football and baseball at the middle school in our neighborhood. And it was pretty incredible just to be like, we didn't have strings attached. Like we got to get this program. We got to get a certain number of kids here. We got to right. meet all these, these outcomes. It was like, really beautiful, just like authentic, organic relationships, which I, I still, even 13 years later, I still feel like that is why we still are who we are as we have 13 people on staff and we've grown tremendously. The relational side of things is, is like still front so front and center because that's kind of how we started. And um, I feel blessed and how we started kind of, we kind of fell into that without even knowing that was like a good foundation to set. Right. Yes. I, Love this. I'm going to back up and ask a bunch of questions that came to my mind that I'm sure people listening have too. So first of all, you were like, what, 21 years old when you got married? Yeah. 22, 22. yeah. Yeah. Super young babies. I was, I was as well. I was 23 when I married Eric. So babies. Yes. Um, And then what did you each graduate from Bethel with? What were your degrees? What did you think you were going to do? Was it specifically missions that you thought you'd do? Well, I graduated with youth ministry, so that kind of carried over, but it's so funny because I graduated and I worked in a predominantly white church. And so I had all the, like the context of suburban youth ministry. Mm -hmm. And then when I came into an urban setting, it, a lot of it didn't translate and it was just really interesting to learn. And then you, I was a business major. I had a minor in missions. So I kind of explored that with with my heart and through through that minor, but, Mm -hmm. um, and you, you, when we did start, a youth group, Allie mm-hmm. would tell me, okay, this is how you preach a message. Three point, do this, <laughs> lead with songs, then an icebreaker. Ice we would breaker. start with 40 kids. And by the end, we'd have 10 kids left. Kids would be leaving. They'd be cussing us out. This stinks. You know, I'm like, geez, your things that you've been teaching me to do aren't working at all. And like, oh, we have to close with a worship song. Like, we- <laughs> so this is not working with this group. I don't know where you got this now. No. That, that is hilarious. I love it. Okay, so it sounds like you you go into this neighborhood um, before you're married, and then eventually, you know, you Allie move out of the girl's house and live with Corey and as husband and wife. And you just, I love that you said you wake up, you read your Bible, you go for a walk, whatever. I, I've got to be honest. How did you make money? Like, what's happening? Were people financially supporting you? Did you not have jobs? <laughs> well, you mentioned you did mention coaching. I will say that you mentioned coaching. I made a few hundred bucks coaching. <laughs> Um, we, we raised, I mean, we raised $30,000 the first year. That was our goal. And that, that covered our housing, our expenses, Mm -hmm. all of our field trips with the kids, everything we did. Um, and so that's, we went around to people and just said, Hey, we're doing this kind of missional thing. Do you want to get money? And 
Yeah. Some people, a lot of people a, said, no, what are you talking about? This what is, are you, you doing? Know? There was a church that um, really had our backs and really carried us through. They kind of parented our way through. So they allowed us to kind of go in their church and speak to groups and like raise money. Grant, keep them. in mind, they said no first. Yes. The and, first, and I said, I'm going to go work at Menards and still do this. And then they called back a few hours later and said, hey, we want to help provide like get a, you guys started. Yeah. Help, help you get started a little yeah. bit. So I feel like there's times where sometimes people are like, did you... Like, how did you, um, you know, create transformation ministries? If sometimes people are interested in like, well, I want to start a ministry. How did you guys start this? And I feel like there's part of me that says we did start intentionally. Like we weren't just walking around our neighborhood and then all of a sudden, like these things were just happening and it just grew out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So we were intentional. Like we had a name, we were raising support, but we had no idea. Like we weren't controlling. We mm. weren't coming in with an agenda saying like, okay, here's our programs, kids sign up for our programs. This is what we're offering you. So there was this balance mm. of, we were intentional. We were doing a ministry, but we weren't, we didn't know what it would look like. And mm. we really wanted God to build it. So we, we did a ton of like in our living room, we would just have this thing we called real talk and whoever was at our house for dinner, whoever came over to help them with homework. There were usually about 10 to 15 kids, boys and girls mixed. We'd eat dinner and then we'd be like, Hey guys, we're going to have a real talk. And they'd be like, what? And then we just, we're just going to talk about questions. And our main rule was that we wouldn't do the talking mm -hmm. that we would just ask questions. We weren't the teachers. We were, we were the no teaching, no lecturing. We would come no up with like, try to come up with two or three just incredible questions, questions. before we start. And we just knew these are going to unlock their hearts and we're going to get some real good dialogue. We, these kids have been taught all day long at school and other, every other setting. Everyone who's older than them says, I have some something to teach you. And so we, number one, felt like they had stuff to teach us, but we also felt like they're not, us telling them what to do or how to live is not effective. It's just flat out not effective. So them exploring their own questions about faith and God and their doubts was actually more effective in them actually deciding like what they want. So that's yeah. kind of been a philosophy we've had is we don't teach. We just ask really good questions. Right. So like one of the kids, I remember they're like, I'm never going to get married. And so instead of just being like, well, wait, uh, it was like, tell me more. Like, I'm so curious, like why, like what in your story and what, why do you feel that way? And it was so eye opening to hear that student open up and share why. And some of the reasons that she shared, I'm like, I don't blame you mm -hmm. like that. So it was really, it was really good. And that's really when those conversations became so special that we were like, man, something cool is happening here. Like God is really present and mm -hmm. this is cool. Like let's put some structure around this. And then that next year is when we said, let's start this thing called I ISI iron sharpens iron and kids have to apply. So this, the next year was the year where it was like, okay, we had 12 students who had applied boys and girls mixed. And then um, we just, we said, okay, every Thursday you come to our house, we're going to eat a, eat a meal together and then we're going to have real talk. And so that's when kind of the structure of the ministry started to form, but it grew slow. Mm -hmm. It's so slow. We had 12 kids for the first couple years, three years. Then we had 20 and we grew to two groups. And then we got to this point where I, rem I still remember we were meeting with a mentor and he was like, do you guys want other help? Like, is this just going to be the Corey and Allie? Like, cause more kids are wanting to do it. And he's just like, do you guys want to expand? And I knew that expanding meant bringing other people into it. Mm -hmm. And that made me really nervous because mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, I don't want, you know, I'm nervous about what other people will think. And I'm nervous. Like, what if, what if they cuss out a, a volunteer? And also what if, with the volunteers what is the volunteer going to say to a student yeah. that's so unkind? What, like, I was so nervous. Yeah. But we did it. And now I'm so thankful because now we have every kid in our program has a one on one mentor and there's like 75 mentors wow. connected with 75 students and over 100 people on the food teams. And it's just like, what if we would have said no, you know, just out of fear? Yeah. Yeah. It almost goes back to what you've said earlier. You had intention, but you weren't going to control. And this was a point where it grew to where it was like, OK, are you going to trust me with the next steps and release some control? And that's hard, man. That is so hard. Another thing that stand that stands out to me um, that we haven't talked about is 
while you're doing this, and we're going to talk more about Transformation Ministries and what you've created and all of that, but while you're in the midst of being newlyweds, inviting kids into your home, probably getting to know their parents, because I'm sure some of them, not all, I'm sure, but some of them probably had parents who are like, where are you going all these evenings after school? Um, You know, probably having to create some trust, especially as you were one of the only white families in that area. And um, we're going to talk about some white savior stuff, too, that I have some questions around that I know you'll be eager to share learnings and whatnot on. But in the midst of all of that, you also grew your own family. Like, you now have four kids. Yes. How did that happen? <laughs> right? Wow. Birds and the bees. It kind of, I remember my parents, especially, they were kind of like, oh, you know, Corey and Allie, they're just newlyweds. Like, they'll kind of get this out of their system. And then they'll probably move out to the suburbs and start a family and kind of get back to a more normal job and things. And then when we started having kids, I, we had been renting our house at this time. And we had our first daughter and then I was pregnant with our second and we, we bought a house in the neighborhood. And I remember that was kind of like, my parents were like, Oh, (laughs) you're buying a house. And so we were really committed to, okay, we're going to start a family, but this is the, we really, we were like, this is the best place for us to raise our kids Mm -hmm. hands down the best. Um, And so we did, we have four kids now and it was Yeah, we've had some miscarriages in there. So it was a rough road, but we, I had to step back a little bit being stay-at-home mom. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was kind of hard at times, but I'm so thankful that our kids are growing up in this neighborhood. I have questions about that. Yeah. People, people would probably, because you would even say that your neighborhood is not the most safe place to live. Um, the, the crime rates are higher and the schools aren't rated as good. And economically it's, I mean, you're probably similar to me. You love the diversity, but you're also like, shoot, I want my kids to be safe. So tell me, tell me a little bit about how has that ever been a tension for y'all or how do you navigate that? Or what has that been like? Yeah, I want to say a point, Amanda, that we call it the American Trinity, safety, comfort, and return on investment. And so that's often what as, a, as Americans we're looking for. It's almost like seen as no looks, even you know, with Christians, it's like I'm looking for a safe neighborhood you know, where I can buy a good house that I can get some, it's a good investment for my family and, you know, we're comfortable. It's a safe haven. And those aren't necessarily bad things, but I think those can become idols quickly. And so even for us, we find ourselves trying to like, Oh, we found it's like a magnet. You're like wanting more of that. And so we've had to be very intentional about as we've continued to have kids and gotten older and even honestly, like our brains are more developed now than they were. And we're like, is this crazy? Um, but we're, we we're very committed to this neighborhood and we feel like we would be disobeying God if we left at this point, not saying Mm -hmm. that will change, you know, two weeks from now, but, um, there's definitely the reality of, you know, we've had father's day last year. I found a bolt in the side of our house. We've had drive-by shootings next door. We we found a gun in our backyard that was fully loaded for a shooting, you know, a week before that, that down the street. Our daughter found a oh, worm. She opened up the, the eaves trap thing and was looking for worms. I'm so thankful we had um, a boy living with us for three years and he was with her. So she was not by herself, but he found it and brought it to us. So I say that not because that's just like, that's a reality, but I don't say, but what people don't understand is like how beautiful this neighborhood is as well. Mm -hmm. And when you really get to know the people around you, you feel actually safer. Safer. And it's just, it's, it's a weird thing, but once you connect with the people here and you, you kind of live in solidarity with them, you actually become friends with them, become family with them. Um, You actually experience the comfort and safety and ROI in a different way, I think. Yep. That and you're just, actually we're, we're we're looking for in the first place. And yeah. So, oh, there um, is there is no one I feel more safe with than my neighbors. Like no one will mess with our house when they yeah. are looking out for it. Um, I have a story that too. Like Avery, she um, we have. Is she your oldest? She's yeah. our oldest. She's, yeah. She's almost ten. Yes. And she experienced this. She, we had a shooting that happened in the middle of the night to the house right next door. And we woke up, it was really loud and it was crazy. And the thing that happened is that all the neighbors were upset. And I think that's something that most people don't realize. Like our neighbors did not like that that happened. They were really, they were like, this is our street. We want to keep this safe. Why is this happening? Mm -hmm. They weren't okay with it. Anyways, Avery, um, so the next couple of days, there was a news reporter that came out to the house next door and they were 
they, they came in the dark, <laughs> they came at nighttime and they were reporting multiple days in a row, multiple days. And anyways, later, so Avery saw the news reporter out there and she knew what had happened. We had talked to her that, you know, that they had gotten shot at. And later she was watching the news report of, you know, here we are on Cushing street and this happened. And she looked at the TV and she was like, mom, is that our house and our street? And night right next to her. I'm like, yeah. She's like, why does it look so scary on the TV? And then she said, and I explained the news report. She said, where were they when we were having our lemonade stand? And like the whole block was out. The kids were making beaded jewelry and they were selling them and everyone had lemonade stands and we were all just doing life and laughing. And it was beautiful. She's like, why didn't they come to a news report then? Cause in her mind, you know, she's nine years old. She's thinking that would be way more newsworthy. <laughs> and I just yeah. thought, yeah, that's really a bummer, Avery, that they missed out on the good parts of our street. And so, well, yes, it, there are times where I'm thinking, oh my word, are we crazy? So much more. I'm thinking she's getting the real deal of what it's like here. And there's really nothing to be afraid of. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. it's really good what's happening. I love that. I love that so much. I I want to go back, Corey. You said, "What did you call it? Did you say the American Trinity?" Okay, so it was comfort, safety, and return on investment, and those are typically what we—they become idols. We we long for them, but they are ultimately almost opposite of what Jesus asks of us. Mm-hmm. Man, it's so hard. I know with fostering and our journey. The return on investment piece is really hard. It's not guaranteed. You rarely see it um, in in real time, potentially not even in your own lifetime. And when you do, it's amazing. And I'm so thankful for those little moments. But I feel that one. The comfort and the safety piece, yeah, it all resonates. It's so, it so resonates. And there's going to be people that listen to this and that feel really convicted. And, and our goal, and I know your goal and your heart, isn't to guilt anyone or shame anyone. But it's just to share your journey in obeying what you feel God has called you to do in the life that you've lived. I love that you pointed out the beauty of the neighborhood and the community that is so often only talked about or highlighted in negative ways, um, in the ways that they fall short. But like every community has that just in different ways. Tell me what have been some of the challenges as a white couple when you, maybe it was more early on, but when you first moved into the neighborhood or, or throughout this journey, what have been some learnings around, there, there were probably people who maybe didn't like you or just were like, what are these people doing? Or probably assumed you were, you were going to come in and be out within a year or less. So I guess I'm curious, how did you navigate that? Was there a point where you were like, maybe it was hopefully prior to going in, but even if it was throughout the journey where you were like, how do we combat this like savior piece and how can we actually help without hurting? Mm, That's good. Yeah. Yeah, All those things you said are true about what people thought about us. You know, people were like telling their kids, they're going to be out in a year. They're coming in here. think they're going to save our poor black kids. And uh, you, you said we didn't have any intentions coming in. We didn't have any ill intentions, but we had, we had by way of our, just what we knew at this point as white people and predominantly white environments, school, um, church and stuff, we were, we had intentions without speaking them. Oh, yeah. And some of those were not there. They were not, they did maybe some harm, you know, oh, for sure, yeah. you know, we, we, we did things that were, were paternalistic. They were savior complex and we wouldn't have called it that, but looking back, it's like, yeah, we thought we were better than them. We yeah. thought we had more resources. We thought we, we thought had more we to offer. We were here to help. We thought we were here. We were the gift to the neighborhood to help, which is so ugly to even yeah. think that. And I remember at Christmas time, you know, we bought gifts and gave them mm-hmm. to families that we knew. And and I remember it really hurt one of our relationships. One of the dads really didn't talk to us again. Mm-hmm. And we were confused. We were like, we just spent all this money and gave your kids Christmas gifts because you wouldn't have, you know, we would, we, what would you have done without us? Like, mm-hmm. and, and it really severed the relationship. Mm-hmm. And we just did some of those things early on that we were like, what are we thinking? Um, I remember one of the boys, he told Corey, we just didn't, we didn't understand race and we didn't Mm -hmm. understand the context that, and one of the boys, Corey's like, you know, Malachi, you can do whatever you want to do. Like the sky's the limit. And he's like, Corey, stop telling me that he's like, I'm black. And every day I look in the mirror and that means something. Mm -hmm. And I remember Corey was like, what in the world? Mm -hmm. 
Like, what is he talking about? Like I'm colorblind and all those mm-hmm. things. And yeah. we really had to, I, I would say it was in the first year. That happened in the first year, probably 10 months in or whatever. And I remember that started the journey for me. It's like, he obviously knows something I don't know. And I'm going to try to help. I'm going to try to figure this out. So we started a journey of just asking tons of people of color around us, like, is in as much humility and vulnerability as just like, what, what, it, where's this coming from? And just trying to yeah. be very curious about this and doing our own realizing work. like, oh my goodness, you know, and then going through those stages as you're realizing like there's, there's the anger that first there's ignorance, then there's anger, then there's kind of like, you know, sadness and there's all these different emotions of, of this kind of the racial dynamic, especially in this country. And so realizing that simply being white people means something that's probably caused some harm or, or trauma or distrust for those in the neighborhood. So looking back now, you talked to a lot of parents that have known us, you know, 11 or 12 years They're They often leave with a story. Yeah. Corey and Allie, these crazy white people came into my door asking if they could hang out with my kids. And we're like, who are these people? And, and they, it always led with like, we thought these people were crazy. Then over time they got to know us and they're like, okay, they began to trust us. But a lot of it was around us simply being white. Yeah. It's like, we don't, we don't, we don't trust you. Thought we were social workers. Thought we were trying to take their kids away. Of course. I had a collar shirt and I was going walking around our neighborhood. I go up and say, Hey, can, can Sakura hang out with us? It's like, is this a social worker here? That's, yeah. that's coming. To, yeah. you know? And so a lot of those things that I think some of our ignorance helped us, but also when we started to really learn where that was coming from, we were able to really press through. That was probably year three where we yeah. started to really press through. They started to see, Hey, these people are serious. They're real. They're still here. They actually just had a first kid. And they're actually learning. They're becoming more aware of some of these things. And, mm-hmm. you know, the journey of, of, yeah, understanding race and what that all means. Like there are moments I've had multiple people of color curse me out <laughs> in, in, in good right. You know, it's like because of just their hurt and their pain. And um, but that's all been part of our journey to like learn, like, where is this coming from? And how can we help, you know, help see healing in this? And so, but I think now, I mean, we still will always be, we don't say this super publicly, but we'll always be recovering racist because I don't feel like as a white person, some people disagree with this, but as a white person, you can ever fully not be racist. Yeah, And uh, that's come from people who I interact more with black people throughout the week, way more than white people. And so, but we still, there's these, these, it's in our, it's just in our history, you know? And so um, we're always trying to continue to learn um, but now it's fun. Cause there's just, there's just, we've been here for 13 years. There's so much trust being built. Yeah. Um, it just feels almost like you don't even, we're not colorblind, but yeah, you, you almost, there's just so many more areas so that we natural. connect on. And it's just like, you don't even really yeah, it's notice so it at times, you know? So that's yeah. pretty cool. To see and, that. and that's what I would encourage people because there was, t- there was times where it was like, are we ever like, should we just move out? Are we doing more harm? This is hard. Absolutely. Um, there were times I remember Corey was like, you know, is this like if I- four or five years ago? So year seven, eight, nine, I was getting a lot of criticism for being a white male leading an organization working with predominantly African-American kids. And it was like, we need to have, it should be a, you know, a black leader. And this is just, you know, not right. It's unfair or whatever. And I remember just being like, God, what do you want? Is it time for me to give it up? You know, mm-hmm. obviously I want someone who's a person of color to lead this and I don't know how to do this. And I, you know, yeah. and so I, I remember questioning for a while and, and God made it pretty clear, like Corey, just, just stay put for now, stay put for now and keep leading with humility and recognizing like the gaps that you have, the blind spots that you have and keep surrounding yourself with people of color that can speak into how your philosophy of ministry and how you navigate certain issues. And so we've done that with our board members. Our, our staff is predominantly people of color. And so like, we've been able to kind of navigate that, but I've tried to just have a posture of humility knowing like as a white male, I hold power that I just can't really like undo. And yeah. so trying to leverage that. Um, I talk about leveraging that a lot so that we can, can, can I, I can take resources and things from others and just hand them straight to um, people that have been affected disproportionately yeah. over the, over the years here. So yeah. I, I love that. And and I do want to dive a little bit deeper even because so I know it's this really to me, this is like so much of what my podcast and my life is about. 
which is life is not black and white. I live in the gray. There's so much nuance. The more you know, it's like the harder it is to be so um, definite about like a camp that you're in or a side that you take. And and it's also hard because when you're talking about the race stuff, and I recognize that we are three white people sitting at this table talking about this right now, but it, it can be hard. I see people getting it wrong, getting told they're getting it wrong. And then what do they do? They throw in the towel. And it's unfortunate because I love that you brought up the posture of humility. Um, we are going to, I, I like that you use the phrase recovering racist. I mean, I agree with you. It's kind of an uncomfortable thing to say out loud, but it's true of my, myself as well. And I help parent black and brown children. But it's important that we, I think, own that and we take that posture because it's the only way we can heal. I believe that the only way to heal is when we come out of hiding. And and if I say to you, I am no, I'm not racist. I never, I don't see any color and da 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 all the things. Then I'm actually just hiding a part that that is actually there. And I, when I'm really honest with myself, I know it's there. It's in our history, like you said. It's not that I. Um, uh, consciously would think a racist thought or make a racist choice, but it's it's so much deeper beneath the surface. So I'm going to get off my soapbox and get it back to you guys, but I, I appreciate it and I love that you normalize it. And I also just in general think it's great to hear that when things got hard, you stayed put, you kept at it because in our marriages, in work, in parenting, in new endeavors that we go out to pursue, we will hit a point where it gets really hard. I just was having a conversation with someone earlier this week about this. I, I made a commitment and I really, things are now getting really, really hard and I want to quit, but I made a commitment. So I'm going to fulfill that commitment and I'm going to do the hard thing. But let me tell you, it is not easy. So hard. Mm-hmm. And it's, and we're talking about something where the stakes are a bit higher, right? In your ministry, in transformation ministries, which, um, is obviously doing amazing things. I want to talk about some of the amazing things that Transformation Ministries is doing. Um, Either you could give me some like factual statistics about it, or if you just have a beautiful story of that kind of encompasses or represents what your ministry is doing and, and how it's making a difference. Okay. I I mean, we, we love, I love the name of your podcast. I haven't listened yet. Amanda to an episode. I will though. I'm going to listen. You have four kids and like a lot of other people in and out of your house every day. I I'm okay. If you I'm, I'm going to be a fan. I'm going to be a fan, but I will say <laughs> this, the, the name of it longer table means a lot to us. We're actually sitting around a table that we've had for 13 years. It was built by a friend of ours and it is just beaten up so much. It's got marks in it and, and it's got paint on it. It's, it looks like it, all of the lacquer on top is gone. And we've had hundreds of kids around this table. It's well lived in. It's been yes. well, and we, we're going to keep it. I mean, as long as we can, because this yeah. thing has been so, so meaningful to us. We've had so many students around this table. Um, I think of one student in particular, her name's Aisha, and I've shared her story more recently. And so she would be fine if I even shared her name and, and things. But she, she was one of those students who was around our table when she was in middle school and was just doing everything she could to push us away. And even when a couple of years, at some point kind of went, went missing, she kind of ran away from home and ended up going to the foster system. It was, you know, outside of her city for a while, got brought back. As soon as she moved back to South Bend, she said, I want to, I want to find Corey and Allie. I want to find Corey and Allie. So she told her foster mom. So she got into ISI. Again, she came in, dinner around our table, and she kept trying to push us away. And that's often a common thing with kids, when kids have trauma or reactive attachment or some of those different things, like they're just, they they experience like genuine love and they push harder away. And I, I just, we just kept inviting her to the table, literally the physical table. So we want to break bread with you again, Aisha. We would, she would leave the table sometimes and we would walk outside quarter mile, walk behind her on, on the sidewalk and say, come back, let's go to the table. And just recently she's now 25 years old. She has a little daughter named Graceland. And she said, you guys showed me a picture of what Jesus really is your lack of judgment and your unconditional love and your pursuit of us continually actually showed me uh, what Jesus is really like. And so she's, I mean, she's pursuing Jesus, I think a lot because of the way that our table and, you know, represented what Jesus is about. And so Aisha's who I think of when I think of this idea of continuing to invite people back to the table, even when she heard us, she cursed at us, she said things that weren't true about us. And we just said, no, let's keep trying to follow the way of Jesus, which would be to keep pursuing her and bringing her back to the table. And she's had ton, 
tons of meals around this table. Um, and, and I, I think it's pretty cool how she kind of attributed what we did back to Jesus, not just our own strength kind of running yeah. after. Yeah. So I'm, I'm gonna let you share too, Allie, but I, I just want to say, it sounds like with these students, cause I guess we, we probably should have acknowledged this at the beginning. Now that I'm thinking about it, I think I just know your heart so well that I didn't feel it was necessary, but the goal, the goal, it, it maybe is, maybe, maybe there is these other smaller goals, but it doesn't sound like the goal was like, we're going to get this many kids to graduate high school or this many kids to get a job, or we're going to have, it doesn't sound like there was a lot of like very measurable goals of it has to be all, you know, these things. It was, we are going to love kids relentlessly and see how, and because of the way Jesus loves us and model this and see how it can change them and us and all of us as a community and bring about healing. And once it's, once you start there with, okay, God, like you have to have Jesus as that foundation or else you'll, you'll give up because that was one thing where like, if, you know, a lot of times the kids push and push and people are like, how have you stayed? And it's like, well, literally Jesus is the only reason, right? I I don't think if I, if I didn't have Jesus, I think I would have given up. It would have been so There's a lot of, I mean, a lot of, you know, non-Christians or, or atheists or whatever that are super great people. They keep pushing forward. They're doing a lot of good work. Yeah. Not, not necessarily bashing that at all. Right. That's but for point. us personally, it's like, for me, personally, we would have given up if we did not have Jesus continually, you know, in us, driving us towards something deeper and right. loving. Absolutely. But like, once you start there with the loving relentlessly, it's like everything else falls into place. You're like, because I love this student, I want them to have a job where they can grow. Because I love this student, how can I how can I look them in the face every week and know that they're failing all their classes and yet just be like, so uh, I'll pray for you? Like that didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so it was like from the love, all these other things trickled where it's like, wait a minute, I, I want to get you this help and I want to do these things because I love you. So yeah, I would say foundational for us is like, the two questions we always say every kid, every person really asks is who am I and where do I belong? And so we try to answer those with how we show up and, and providing a place of belonging where we can say there's value in you. You are made in the image of God. You reflect him. Even if you don't know it or think it, um, that, that if we do that, answer those questions, then the, the graduations come. The job stability comes. Some of those other things come from it. And so we actually do measure some of those things now, but it's still out of our, you know, love that that those things work themselves out. Yeah. It sounds like obviously the ministry has, has grown and you have a staff team and there are, of course, you're going to have some measurable goals and stuff, but it's, I love what it's rooted in. I love that it's about people of all ethnicities and economic backgrounds and everything else, spending their privilege well, doing what they can to love their neighbor. Yes. which is a commandment. And I love that. I am curious how your ministry and the life you're living has impacted your children and your marriage. If you can think of, it could be positive or negative, but how has it impacted or made a significant, you know, noticeable difference or mark on your kids and your marriage? That's good. That's really good. Yeah. I would say, I mean, I would say for our marriage is really cool um, because I feel like we're, we're living on mission and, and I don't say that in like a cheesy way, like truly because we're following God in this way. It's like it's kept us focused on things that matter and things that are important. And so um, we just don't have t- as much time for some of the maybe pettier things that come up. I feel like it's really kept us kind of Mm -hmm. going the same direction together side by side. And so there's purpose in our marriage and there's something bigger that we're kind of going after than just like our own happiness Mm -hmm. or our own, because as soon as we turn towards each other and we try to like get that stuff from each other, then like our relationship crumbles. Mm -hmm. And so, which, yeah, we've definitely had some hard, hard points. And so we notice that when we are focused on that goal and that thing together, it's like, okay, we're on the same team. We're doing this thing. It's, it's hard work. We're getting dirty. It's gritty. We got to fight, but it's like this, we're pulling towards the same direction. So I feel like overall it's been really good. I mean, there's definitely points where maybe I'm struggling and I'm like, Corey, I don't know. 
I'm the mama bear over here. And I'm like thinking our kids, this is getting hard. There's definitely times where we've had to come back to the table and Mm -hmm. be like, okay, you're struggling. I'm not like, there were times where I was, he's like, I can't have any more people in our house right now. I'm struggling. I'm like, I'm not, I'm doing great. I want to keep inviting people. Okay. So I'll, I'll honor that for you. And then other times where I'm like, Whoa, I'm burning out. This is too much. And he's like, really? Like, so we've had to definitely like be aware of each other and be honoring each other's needs. But I think yeah. the uh, Yeah, I would agree too with the missional part. Like that's, it's been overall really good because it's been bigger than ourselves. Yeah. Like we didn't watch Netflix the first three years. We had kids in our home 10 days out of the week. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, just felt like they're there all the time. Right. And, but I would say a hard part was whenever there's like a crisis thing that comes up. That's when it gets hard for That's us. where I would say like, we, we we respond differently. We need to continue. We're still working through that. Like when there's a crisis that happens and you can't predict it, 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, there's a potential, some suicide ideation or there's a drive-by shooting or something like that. There's some domestic abuse and, and that call comes. We respond differently in that. And I so, tend to freak out and panic and worry. And like, are we going to be okay? Wait, I don't know if I want you to go and be the first person there. Wait, wait, wait. I tend to get really nervous and he tends to just be like, really want to go straight to the person, get in, straight, it. Yeah. get in it. And I'm like, and then sometimes I see that as, are you choosing this over? Like you have a family yeah. and you need to come home to us and you are yeah. a father for your kids. And so sometimes I get like, wait, you better choose us first. But then he's like, this person needs help. Like yeah. there's, you know, and so we have to work through yeah. that. Um, and that's happened. There's, yeah, there's been a huge crisis about every six months or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we're like, Oh yeah, here we are again mm-hmm. and again. And so we, d- we do, we have to, we're trying to continue to work to be proactive in how we navigate that and kind of know, know, talk it through before it happens, you know? Yeah. yeah. And cause I never want to hold him back either. I'm like, well, I don't want to, cause you not to go help if I'm so yeah as far as kids I mean overall there is you know the moments you're like as a father I'm kind of like is this the most responsible thing for me to raise we have three older daughters three daughters and then a a, a little boy and it's like "Ah, is this the most responsible but overall when you step back you just see they're getting such a good childhood they're getting exposed to such diverse things Things that were never normal to us, they just think are kind of normal in a good way of like just their comfort level with different people that, that have different cultures and different ways of thinking. We have a kind of a little joke that, that we say, like our, our kids will ask me sometimes, like if music's being played, they're like, is that bad music or is that good music? <laughs> and in, in our neighborhood, we say there's not, there's no such thing as bad music or good music, but there's just hood music. And this is, this is hood music and that we love hood music and there could be multiple F words. And there could be whatever you you think. And we're just like, this is, this is our neighborhood and we're going to embrace it. So like, there's those moments where we're navigating through, like, this it's is just, messy, our, right? there's a, this is our neighborhood and we, we're not going to judge this music, you know? Right. Yeah. So when we spoke, we, you know, our oldest daughter would be like, whoa, okay. Is that, is that bad? Or is it, it's like, well, it's, it's messy. And I don't, I, I want to be careful how it answers those questions because I don't want her to be like, oh, look, that's bad. It's it's different and there's lots of things, but, um, yeah, so it is, it's how you said earlier, it's not black and white. It's gray. Right. We're trying, we want to uplift our neighbors and dignify our neighbors, but also, you know, we're, we're, we're teaching and discipling our kids through the things that they're, they're experiencing. But I think overall, like they're just better because of it. And we've mm-hmm. seen them adapt quickly and be comfortable and, and have a heart for the underdog, mm-hmm. um, have a heart for people that m- others might kind of push the side or marginalize. Um, I think our kids are, are getting that same heart. Right. So. Well, they have a name and a face for it. And so it, when I talk, we're, um, going through history stuff and our oldest, she's like, wait a minute. So you're saying that Deanna and Denisha, are, you know, like this is their experience. And so it's just like, yeah, like, I, I couldn't have gone to school with my best friends. What we would have had to go to different schools or drink from different water fountains. I'm sure it's like that much more real for her. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of, I, I see a lot of my friends that when they live in, you know, the suburbs where they all look the same, there's just, you know, it's like a white neighborhood or whatever, or community. They're trying to really teach their kids 
to um, see the value and different. And Avery, my oldest, you know, she's, she is living it. And so for her to not see the value, she's confused why you'd even have to try to, (laughs) I'm not explaining it right, but just, she is, it's like, she doesn't know another way. Yes. Yeah. It's like to try to explain to her what it would be like. It's like, she's like, well, of course, you know, Mm -hmm, this is, mm -hmm. these are my friends. These of course they're, they're normal people. Of mm-hmm. course they're fun. Of course they're, they like the same things in me. Of course, like there's all these commonalities that she sees that their skin color is like, so it's, it's like, so down on the list. Yeah. She sees all the humanity. Yeah. In and we've been able to, that, make, the beautiful thing too, we could go on and on obviously man about our kids and what they're learning, but I'll say like being able to break down stereotypes just by being around people. Cause when you're not around a certain group of people, it could be, different gender it can be race whatever and you often assume things or stereotypes and stuff our kids they they get to see such a diverse group of particularly black and brown people that are that we know some that are wealthy married you know some that aren't married some that are you know lower income some that are lawyers some that are doctors some that haven't had a job for four or five years like there's just so they don't see like oh black person means this oh black person on the sidewalk that has a hood on their head means I need to be scared. It's like, Oh no, that, that person could be so-and-so who's got a 4.1 and is about to graduate from high school. And they've it, seen that. Yeah. Cause they, they yeah. see different. So I think that's really beautiful too, to like, they don't have stereotypes really of particular people of Brown and Brown and black because they've seen so many different types. Yes. Yeah. And I did ask Avery, I homeschool her. And so we've been pressing, we're learning about underground railroad and lots of things. So I was asked her, I was like, what do you think of, you know, when you see someone that is black or like who is someone different than you? She's like, I, my, her first thought is, I think I might know them. Like I probably know that person. <laughs> so it's just like, okay. Yeah. Like there's, it's really cool that that is forming. Mm-hmm. That's really sweet. I, I love all of that. And, and about the marriage piece, just to go back a little bit, when you guys were sharing that, thank you for being like vulnerable and open that you don't have this perfect marriage because people are going to look at you. People probably already do, but especially new people that are listening to this who will check out Transformation Ministries and kind of get to see you guys. They may write a story that you are just these saints and you have this amazing marriage and you just have figured it out and you have the answers that they they, they just don't have. Like, what are these answers, right? And it's just this beautiful thing that you were able to open up and share uh, the reality of your marriage and that it's not all sunshine and rainbows and that there are hard points and you're n- still navigating it, t- you know, over a decade in. So I love and appreciate that. And it reminds me, I don't know why this is coming up for me, but we'll follow it. Could be a Holy Spirit prompting. Um, it reminds me that people often, when I, when I get in conversations about marriage, I like to say that I believe, and I can't, I am not taking the credit for this. I heard it somewhere. I don't know where, and it's my own version now, but I heard it said like, you want to marry the person among other reasons. You want to marry the person who you can do more to further the kingdom of God with than you could on your own. Mm-hmm. And I love that when I think about that definition, I see you guys. When I think about my marriage with Eric, I feel like that is very true. Um, I could do maybe a, some really great things, but I know that God gave me Eric as a partner and that we function really well together and are able to do more here on this earth to further the kingdom of God than we could as individuals on our own. And so that's really beautiful. Now, I know lots of single people that I think as they are currently single and, and maybe they always will be, they're doing great things too. And so it's not to elevate marriage. It's just to say that when you are married, there will be hardships, but it is also really cool that for the two of you and for myself and Eric, like the, the spouse can, can be the strong one at times. Like, it sounds like you guys kind of have to take turns balancing each other out. One of you might be like, okay, I am ready to go get comfort in the burbs and safety and, an, and just some ease to our life. Right. Um, and the others there just to remind you like, no, this is our mission. This is our purpose. Like this matters and it's worth our life. Yeah. So I love all of that. Okay couple questions to wrap up our time together. I want to know what advice you would give someone who's listening, who really wants to build relationships with their neighbors, but they aren't sure how or where to start. And maybe they don't live in a neighborhood like yours, or they're not in a city like I'm in. And it feels awkward. Maybe they've even been neighbors with in their neighborhood and lived with the same neighbors for 
you know, five plus years. And so then it's like out of nowhere, do I just start up a relationship? Like how, where do I begin? That's so good. You want to go? Yeah. I mean, uh, I can go. It doesn't matter. It, it kind of depends your context. It really does. So obviously if you live in the country and you can't see a house, there's a house, you know, half a mile away, that's different. But I found a few things that as people have asked us this question before that have, that have been helpful to people, maybe not all of them, but some, at least one of these. So one thing I think of is obviously it takes time to build a relationship. So we have to slow down. There's an idea of a Sabbath once a week. Like those are, that's God kind of wrote that into our, in our, in our wiring. We need that. And I think part of that is to reconnect with him, but also reconnect with others. We're built for relationship, no matter how introverted or extroverted we are. So slowing down. Um, the second one for us that works really well is needing people. And so um, not just having all of your tools and lawn equipment and food and everything, like being willing to go borrow something from someone or go ask, you know, we often will ask for, you know, baking items, eggs, sugar, honey and things. Those are simple things, but we go and ask intentionally so that we can connect with our neighbors. Um, just a funny one that we talk, but I think it represents a lot. If you do live in a neighborhood, like don't park in your garage because it's so easy to park in your garage and then go inside and just really not interact with your neighbors, but parking outside on the street. We actually have a garage in, in the back. We never park in it because it's like, we want to see our neighbors when we're getting out of our car. And that just represents us just more being available than yeah. anything. But those are like the first things I think of when I think about giving advice to someone who's just like trying this. We, we have neighbors around on our block too, that we don't know super well either. I mean, mm -hmm. we have neighbors that we have neighbors on, on our street that we have not had in our home for dinner. Mm -hmm. We've lived in this particular house for seven years. Mm -hmm. It happens to us too. And this is like our, like we've dedicated our life to this. So it's yeah. not just like yeah. we have, we know every house no. on this block. We've had them all over for dinner. We know, I mean, we know they're, it's not no. that simple. Yeah. Um, so I want to be real about that too, but um, it just takes, it just takes some little step, I think, towards something and, you, and you'll be, you'll be happy that you did it. Yeah. Well, I'm surprised you didn't say this because I'm going to say a phrase that Corey always says, because this okay. is what he, every time, because it's uncomfortable to go, it's just uncomfortable. And he always tells me, he says, Allie, do it afraid. Like do it afraid mm -hmm. you, if you wait until you are not nervous or you are not uncomfortable, you will never do it. And so every time I walk up on the porch and go to knock on the door, or every time I go to, you know, get out my phone and call, I'm like, this is so awkward or, Oh, this is good. So, and I'm just like, no, I'm going to do it afraid. Like I'm going to do things while I'm afraid. And I'm going to push through that because if I don't, then I'm just, you know, we, we have to do things while we're afraid, I guess, yeah. and while, while we're uncomfortable. Yeah. It's not like we can wait for the fear to go away and then we'll start. Cause guess what? The fear is probably never going to go away. Never. <laughs> and, and the uncomfortable, it gets better and better. Like we, I have had so many clunky interactions with my neighbors, <laughs> with people that are different than me and people of color, so many clunky interactions, but I keep showing up to them and they keep getting better. And then years down the road, we can laugh at how clunky we were at the start. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, so we have a neighbor, Jose, who doesn't speak English. I mean, right. so we're just like, we're like, hi. And then his wife, Ophi, she says a few English words. So we're kind of trying to. We do a lot of smiling. We, 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 yeah, we, we, we've been in their home. They've been in ours and stuff, but it's like, we're trying to like navigate this. And, and the neighbor right beside, I'm looking at their house right now. They, they speak English, but it's like so culturally different that you're like, what are they saying? I, I have no idea what, what he's talking about or she's talking about. And so yeah. those are like real things that like you have to navigate. Like we, there's differences there, but being yourself always being and yourself. just doing it afraid is because just like always the best. Corey, he's a lot more gregarious than me. Um, he, he's more confident. He's more bold. He'll say like a joke. I'm like, that was so inappropriate. And they're laughing. <laughs> so I'm like, Oh man, you're so much better at this whole thing. But I've had to really own that. I'm a more timid person. I'm a more quiet or reserved person. And while that's, I I've just owned that. I'm like, this is me. And this is what I have to offer. And the ISI moms, they love me now, you know, uh, mm -hmm. they love that. And they don't want me to be any different than myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just being yourself too. Mm -hmm. I love it. Be yourself. I loved your point about being available and, and that can little details of 
whether you park in your garage or not could could communicate the difference of being available. If you're never sitting outside or outside to interact with a neighbor, then they're probably going to assume you don't want to. So even if, you know what I'm saying? It's almost like when someone interacts with another person who is really, really reserved and the person on the other side of them writes a story that they're stuck up. And really that person's like, no, I'm just shy. Right. So it's these little things we can do. Be available, be yourself. I love, I love some of those things. Um, I know we didn't talk a ton specifically about transformation ministries, but we're going to link everything in our show notes so people can take it a step further on their own if they'd like to get involved or see what you're doing and kind of start to replicate that in their own community. But what are your future goals for transformation ministries? Like what, I'll take it kind of to a morbid place, but like at the end of your life, like what do you hope is said about transformation ministries and the work that you're doing and the life you're living? That's good. Yeah. I mean, obviously we want to provide a place to belong. We want people to feel like I belong there and that's every type of, you know, race, gender, ethnicity, um, religious background. Like we just want people to be like, I felt like I belong there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we also want people to know, like we, we promoted Jesus as good news, like, and it's for everyone. Jesus is good news for everyone. That's a value that a belief that drives us in so much of what we do. So, um, you know, we don't, 20 years from now, I don't want to be, I don't want to be separated from, from what Jesus means for us. But I mean, we do have some, it's, we have a pretty crystal clear vision as of the last year or so. God, God wants us to invest in zero to 25 year olds. And so we've been mostly sixth through 12th grade. And we've just kind of dabbled now this last year into kindergarten through fifth grade. We want to eventually start an early learning center. We, we call it completing the circle. We want to be able to look at, into a teen mom that's pregnant and say, Hey, you have a couple options. You can, you can adopt this child out or you can have this baby and we're going to be right there with you through the pregnancy. And when you have this child, we're going to be right there with you providing good support for eight hours, 10 hours a day. You can go get a job, you know, and we're going to be walking with you all the way through this child's life. And we're not set up for that yet, but we're getting there. We just purchased a 36,000 square foot warehouse building right next to ours to renovate and remodel, to kind of make it like a hub for the neighborhood for decades to come. Ultimately, I want one of our neighbors to take over. I want I want our kids that are being you know invested in now to be leading this this. Yeah. So th- the idea is we're working ourselves out of a job. You know, it's yes. like we're we're no longer needed, and we're just kind of we're just seeing the neighborhood run this thing, and uh, so that that's kind of our our dream. I. I love that so much. Oh, it like gives me goosebumps and like I had tears in my eyes, honestly, as you were talking. It's so impactful. And you've you've kind of said this in your own way earlier that, and I'll quote, it's um now a book title of, of, of another woman I just had on the podcast named Mary Morantz, but her her latest book is called Slow Growth Equals Strong Roots. And you kind of uh, alluded to that earlier in what you were saying that like this stuff takes time. It's slow. Like, especially if you're listening and you're really fired up right now, like I am, I'm motivated. I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to like go do for my neighbors and be part of it's, it's not something that you can do overnight and it doesn't really have an end goal. It's really this ongoing lifestyle and it is just as much going to change you as it will impact those that you're trying to help or see have a more fruitful life, a life, you know, that they deserve. And oh, I just love it. I'm I'm truly so motivated and so encouraged. I never really do this, but I want to end our our whole conversation together asking if you guys have a verse, a specific verse in scripture that either of you either just like really love and come back to often or that you uh, have sort of built your life around. Ooh, that's good. The, oh, go ahead. I think, <laughs> I think right away, John 10, 10. Oh. So the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come to give you life and life to the full or life abundantly. And I think that's what, that's the good news for me. Like, I just want to live a life of flourishing of abundance and of fullness. And I want, I believe everyone has the opportunity for that. And they don't have to make the most money, have the best education you know, have the perfect family unit, mother, father, two kids and a, and a, a, a dog. Mm-hmm. Like, I just think that we all, that's all available to us. And that's what I want for my, for myself, for our biological kids, for the kids that we interact with daily is we want them to know, yes, you can live a life of flourishing in abundance. And so that's good. I was going to say Jeremiah 29 is I think I'm getting it right. I can't quote it perfectly, but where he says like in the city, like 
like live in the city and plant your gardens and have your kids and do the thing. And it is in that, that you will find your own, how does it go? It's like in the city, you will find your own. You'll prosper. Yeah, you'll prosper. Yeah. I butchered it, but it's- You need to read your Bible, I mean, I had my quote and word for word, so- It's in my heart. We'll get there, we'll get there. It's in my heart. But just this idea, (laughs) this idea that as you plant yourself Mm -hmm. and as you pour out, because, and as you care about your place and as you care about your community and your neighborhood and your block, wherever you are at your, your farm, like wherever you are, as you care- it's going to come back and that's going to bless you because you don't do it because it's going to, it's going to benefit you, but it's it's, how it works. works. If you pour in and you care for the place and the people ultimately it will come back. Totally. Because it's your place. Yeah. You're living in it too. Yes, totally. Thank you guys so much. And for people listening, if you live in a very affluent area, if you live in an all white community or or maybe you're not white and you live in a community that you're only surrounded by people who look like you or have the same type of resources as you or whatever it is, I still believe that this is for you. And and like Corey and Allie said, you can do um, so much with what you have where you are. No, you you don't have to. I also love that their their mission led them 10 minutes from the college that they attended. It didn't necessarily take them overseas. That we can do really awesome things and live beautiful lives that follow Jesus right where we are, wherever that is. Um, that ultimately you don't have to be called out of where you are to go somewhere. But um, just start today. Start now. Um, it starts with a smile and a hello and being available. So thank you guys for, yeah, your encouragement and the life you're living. I'm I'm so excited to point more people to you. Like I said, everything is going to be in our show notes, but we just appreciate that you are building longer tables. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Amanda. It's been super fun. It went fast. <laughs>